Welcome to Can I Kick It? This is a podcast about film festivals. My name is Jesse Weber, and I am joined by one of my regular co-hosts, Emilio Diaz, as well as by two guests who have attended this year's Toronto Film Festival, Chris Housen Jan and Kenny Sage. Hey guys, thanks for having us. Hi, yeah, happy to be here. I guess we've not had multiple guests before. That was Chris and then Kenny introducing themselves for our listeners. Yeah, we're also we're also not associated with each other in any way, <laughs> other yeah. than the fact that we both live in the same country. Yeah, we're on different sides. Mm-hmm. All right, want to talk Canadian so, geography? Uh, absolutely. Uh, uh, it seems like you're moving on. You can go ahead. <laughs> all right uh yeah we're gonna talk about this year's toronto film festival which uh uh none of us could attend because it was region locked to canadians and so we're gonna talk to some canadians uh i guess i will start just by asking uh and either of you can go first uh what is the movie from the festival that you are most excited to talk about? I'll jump in. Uh, I mean, I feel like the movie I'm most excited to talk about, or at least that I'm most excited for other people to see, is probably American Utopia. It's not the movie I liked the most, but it's the movie that I feel like a lot of people will have different perspectives on it. And I feel like it's just like something that is the most sort of experiential and the most different that I saw. Yeah. Um, American Utopia was a big one for me. I'm also very excited to talk about one night in Miami, which I connected with a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, those are two of the, the bigger movies in the festival. American Utopia will be talking about some point on this podcast between the New York Festival and the HBO release. One Night in Miami, we're still kind of waiting on to see uh, the Amazon date. But yeah, if you guys have more to say about either of those movies. Kenny, why don't you jump in on American Utopia because we are not American Utopia, uh, One Night in Miami, because we both saw it and I know you liked it. I'd say a fair bit more than I did. So I'd, I'd love to hear what really connected with you for it. Yeah. One Night in Miami was one. Uh, obviously, it's like the film directorial debut of like Regina King, who is, yeah, who is an actress I often enjoy, like who... She won the Emmy for Watchmen, like, last night, Yeah, I believe that happened. Yeah, so talented performer, and this was kind of her debut, and it was was a little, I think, 
stagey is one that gets kind of thrown around because it's a adaption of a play that is mostly it's four characters in a room talking but but within that kind of construct yeah but she was able to find kind of interesting stuff to do with it both in sort of the film kind of opens with each character gets roughly like a five minute introduction where you see them sort of operating in society and get a sense of this is their place. This is some of the racism they deal with in every day. This is kind of a sense of who they are. So you get those kind of moments before they throw in. There's some really good uh, boxing action in it with Cassius Clay, who we all know goes on to become Muhammad Ali. Like the boxing in it was clean enough where I'm like, oh, if they announced Regina King is directing a new Creed movie or something, I'd be interested in that. But mostly, I think, for that one, was the performances that really got to me. Like, there was... And, I mean, all four of them were really good, but Leslie Odom Jr., who played Sam Cooke in particular, and, and then I'm just pulling up the name of the Malcolm X one a lot, because... Kingsley Benadir, who played the Malcolm X yeah. in it. Kingsley Benadir, like in particular, like obviously it's a it's a forehander, but those are the two who kind of become the focus of the movie, and a lot of it is about their sort of debate between what their responsibility is as prominent like black black American personalities. Yeah, it's it's definitely a movie that is very much hung on the performances because like i i do think it's well directed but you know it, it it is a little hamstrung by what the movie is because so much of it is like kenny said it's just people sitting in a hotel room talking and you know she tries to do interesting things with that but it is sort of an inherent limitation on how much the movie could do but yeah uh something kenny sort of touched on that i really found interesting was that it's it's four black Americans at the same time, four people who are all, you know, celebrities in their field, but four people who have very different sort of approaches and different ways that they encounter and deal with racism. Uh, it, it sort of ends up being on these two sort of dividing lines. You have Malcolm X and Cassius Clay, who are, you know, the more outspoken, the more people who are putting their views out there and being very active in, in a political sense. And then Jim Brown and Sam Cooke were definitely, I don't think people you really think of as major civil rights trailblazers, although they were both were in their own way, who sort of take the more like calm, considered approach. And, and I think that that's really the heart of the movie is it's those two sides sort of figuring out what the right way is to, approach and deal with racism in a time that was obviously extremely racially charged set in 1964 and it's also one that deals with kind of i think the weight of that celebrity like obviously they have debates and they have like the big scenes but there's also a fair bit of them just kind of hanging out and you got like a nice scene of malcolm x on the phone with his daughter and it really tries to show you you know these are just, like, people who are kind of, like, figuring it out. They just happen to be in these, like, very, like, position of having 
great influence and a great voice and the conflict that kind of arises from that I thought was like re yeah, really interesting to see play out especially when it kind of veers into a bit of colorism with the suggestion that maybe Malcolm X is able to be more outspoken because he is like a lighter shade than Sam Cooke or Jim Brown yeah so it seems like it's uh, in a movie that is so seems so based on debate in these conversations you assume they would have to find every angle possible to which these four men are like differ and are alike in their sorts of takes and experiences with with racism as is known was known historically and dramatized for the play and now this movie so it's interesting to hear good things about it to hear just like the that it the performances are good that's obviously something that you sort of assume from a movie first movie directed by a first time director who is was previously an actor that they would focus on that sort of thing and that's probably what drew her to the material though i can't speak with her but always great to sometimes you just need an acting showcase i wasn't the biggest fan of fences which just sounds a little like in terms of being like a single setting play adapted into yeah. screens f sort of faithfully. But I'm willing mm -hmm. to give it the benefit of the doubt that this is maybe a little more engaging and trying to deal with things that are s sort of prescient, sort of like important right now. And I'm excited to see these. Like I, I'm a fan of all the actors except Kingsley Benadir, who is more of an up and coming guy, but I like, Leslie Odom Jr. and I like the other guys, so seems fun. Any other t any other yeah, final thoughts on One Night in Miami? Well, I was gonna say one thing, an interesting comparison to eventually make once uh, people have seen them both is that uh, not to to cross up timelines, but a movie that I'll be talking about in our first. New York Film Festival Dispatch probably uh, is Malmkrog, which is also a movie that is about uh, people in a room hashing out a philosophical issue, uh, and is it could also be called very stagey, uh, even though it's I believe it is based on a piece of philosophical writing as opposed to being based on a play and it's set in 1900 in Europe and is clearly kind of foreshadowing World War One. but it will be, I would be really interested maybe when uh, we can get a few people who have seen both of those movies. Uh, I imagine I will have seen One Night in Miami by the end of the year to see how they compare. Yeah, it's definitely maybe we it, can. Mm -hmm. It's definitely a movie. It's a movie about those conversations, and so I what I what I like about it is, obviously, it's very easy to tell a story about racism being bad. Like there are a lot of movies about mm -hmm. racism being bad, and there is a bit of that. But the fact that it is at its core like a movie about what the right way is to stand against racism and what the right way is to fight racism, I think is something that feels even more relevant today than just, you know, pointing out racism, but point asking, how are we going to deal with this? And what are we supposed to, 
how are we supposed to go about that? Mm-hmm. Any other thoughts? Oh, uh, yeah, I, I agree. Like, it's definitely an interesting movie to be coming out. I'll be excited for people to, to see it. And yeah, again, it's, yeah. it's definitely one where uh, actor heavy, like, besides the leads, you also get. Lance Reddick has a pretty like like he gets the end movie <laughs> as sort of Malcolm X's bodyguard from the Nation of Islam, mm-hmm. and he's in it. And like Bo Bridges and Michael Imperioli have really good like one or two scenes, kind of in the beginning letter. Mm-hmm. I think Bo Bridges' scene is going to be something that will definitely get talked about, just because of kind of the nature of mm-hmm. it. All right, and as far as uh, our audience being able to see this movie, if you're in the United States, it has been announced, I think, in both cases as the closing film for the Hamptons Film Festival and the Montclair Film Festival, and I think it's going to be available across the country uh, on both of those festivals in October as well as being out on Prime at some point before the Oscars, whether that's in December or in January or February. Who knows? Yeah, so um, do you want to move on to talking a little bit more about American Utopia or are there any other movies that you watch that you maybe might want to highlight? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm happy to talk about American Utopia. Um, I, I I didn't see as many movies as I wanted to this year. Um, just to talk a little bit about, you know, what the structure of the festival is like. There were mm-hmm. physically socially distant screenings, and there were I know there were a lot of drive-in screenings. I don't know anyone in Toronto that owns a car. <laughs> it's not quite uh, New York levels of nobody drives, but. I, I don't know of any like people under like 30 that drive a car. So I assume that was mostly people from the greater Toronto area getting out to those. But yeah, every everything I saw was uh was online and I assume Kenny's not in Toronto, so yeah, <laughs> I assume he didn't I'm, make it out to any of those. Yeah, I'm in Alberta, which is more much more to the west of Toronto. So everything I did was through virtual screenings mm-hmm. and yeah, how, did, I, how was the experience like what what were there any pre-roll ads did the movies just play what was what was the online ex- tiff experience like yeah so there were pre-roll ads it was it was a weird process because the site was sort of separate from the regular tiff site i won't bother talking about that um but there were pre-roll ads. Uh, TIFF fans, the L'Oreal Paris ad was still in rotation. Good to know. Um, I was really missing my boy Jeremy this year, who was... Uh, wait, what, is, what does Jeremy do? He's like, he's like a, an assistant. So, so. He's like a celebrity assistant. Oh, I, I love Jeremy. Don't get me started. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we. I, I feel like it was a pretty pretty standard slate of Did they have the Canadian content ad? There wasn't a Canadian content ad. It was it was a little lacking this year. Not as good as last year, definitely. But they they did their best with what they could manage. 
Yeah, it was like a land acknowledgement and then a couple other things. I've never been to the festival proper, so I don't know how it compares, but... Yeah, usually the, the land acknowledgement is done by the person sort of introducing the movie rather mm -hmm. than in a video format, but... Yep. Like, for people okay. who maybe have never attended TIFF in person, like Kenny, there there's a sort of, like, I'm not going to say mythology, but there's some a sort of, like, interesting talking points that just, like, of just the conversations you have around the festival about the sort of pre-roll ads and just, like, the same five bits you see before every movie, especially when you end up watching, like, mm -hmm. 20 movies in a, in a festival and just, like, the dumb bits like when the piracy ad comes up people doing going r in the screenings it, which sort of contributes to like a festival atmosphere which obviously doesn't exist in an online like landscape so i was interesting if they would even try to just play those pre-roll ads yeah I, I actually i ended up watching american utopia with two other people who were both at parts of the festival last year so <laughs> i got to i got to point out the l'oreal paris ad which i think has new footage of viola davis in it that wasn't there last year yeah but i that, i saw the l'oreal paris ad before the uh the conversation between uh barry jenkins and claire denis which was free to members and i did notice that viola davis footage Yeah, the Jeremy, the celebrity assistant, and also the uh, the one that's just about Tiff that has that great song. That's I was also missing that. The one that has that great song. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like it's like Tiff is, and there's a part where they right. show Drake for one yes, second. I, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, and there's a great song. I guess I'm I'm not as hot on the song as you are, but I do know <laughs> what ad you're talking about. I'm really into the Tiff commercials. This year it was just all like, I mean. People have already made the joke so much it's like hacky now, but it's all just like in these uncertain times commercials. Mm -hmm. But also there's now like a subgenre of these uncertain times commercials that are like, now that we're getting back out there, <laughs> time to buy our products again. Hey, listen, aren't, isn't that what advertising is just about sending people to die for your thing? So yeah. I, I feel like that's a natural, uh, just like transition into American Utopia. As a person who has not seen it is, my question is what is different between it and Stop Making Sense structurally if there is any sort of difference? And we should say, I don't think we have said that American Utopia is the uh, filmed version of uh, David Byrne's new show called American Utopia that he toured with and then brought to Broadway uh, and it's directed by Spike Lee. Yeah, so I, I can talk about the general sort of structure of the show and then if you wanted to sort of talk about how compared to Stop Making Sense, Kenny. Well, my thing is, I've never actually, I had not seen Stop Making Sense before I watched American Utopia. Whoa. Watched it the next day, so I actually saw American Utopia first. Whoa. This is huge. <laughs> this is big. Mm -hmm. What did you think of American Utopia then, Kenny? As somebody who, Going in cold. As, as somebody who had no... Well, I assume you had some expectations, but did not have the expectations of maybe one of the greatest movies ever made. 
Yeah. Yeah, no, I thought American Utopia was was great. Like yeah. I think some of the stuff they they did and I think a key difference once I had seen Saw Making Sense is American Utopia, like Spike Lee is he's not afraid to like kind of get to angles you don't typically see in a concert film. Like it'll go overhead at points and you kind of just see see them like that way, or it'll go behind them and he really just tries and gives you a full sense of everything they're doing. Yeah, and obviously this one's a bit more... Well, it's still effectively a concert, but it is a bit more theatrical. It's like David Burns and his ensemble of about 11 similarly dressed individuals. And, you know, there's, there's a bit more dan dancing. They're not all playing instruments there, and... Some of the arrangements of, like, talking head songs he does are a little different from, like, Stop Making Sense, since it is just mm -hmm. him. Like, I think the big overlap is, like, Once in a Lifetime and This Must Be the Place are both kind of in American Utopia. And then I think Burning Down the House is the other big one that's, like, in both movies. And mm -hmm. there's always just stuff going on to keep it that, that way and... But yeah, I thought they were both, I mean, obviously it's like similar to that. It's a concert film where the folk appeal is seeing David Byrne do his thing for, you know, a hundred minutes or whatever, but I thought like Spike Lee did like enough to try and differentiate it from Stop Making Sense. Mm -hmm. I don't know how it plays to someone who had seen Stop Making Sense first, but. How does it, Chris? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's very much it very much feels like it's David Byrne doing his thing. Um, something that sort of struck me is like even though this guy I don't even know how old David Byrne is, but it's been what like thirty five years since Stop Making Sense. Um, I'm just I'm just gonna go with that yes, figure. That's it's been correct. about thirty five years. Yeah, and like say, he looks a lot younger in Stop Making Sense. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, he does look significantly younger. Um, but like, I feel like it's it's a sort of thing where normally if you saw an '80s musician doing a show in 2020, it would feel very like nostalgic in a lot of ways, and a lot of sort of either trying to evoke their '80s persona or sort of how it's different from their '80s persona. But it still just feels like David Byrne is like such a singular guy, and his whole his whole aesthetic and ideas are so like original to him that it still feels like a new thing, even though there are a lot of similarities and, you know, some, a lot of the songs are like 40 years old now. Um, like Kenny said, there, there's a lot of movement stuff. It, it, it sort of, I feel like blurs the line between a concert and like a stage show. Cause there is a lot of movement and a lot of dancing, um, which is great. <laughs> like it, it's a lot it, it is a lot more regimented than stop making sense in that way or a lot more choreographed um but yeah i i thought it was great as well um obviously you know i feel like trying to live up to stop making sense is just an impossible task but it it mm -hmm. does feel a lot like like a sequel to that and I, i've seen some people it's a take i'm not sure i fully I'm on board with, but sort of the idea of like those two acting as bookends for each other 
and how those play in relation to each other. I do want to rewatch Stop Making Sense so I can have a better sense, if you will, of uh, of how they actually dialogue with each other in that way. But yeah, it, 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 they do they do feel of a piece mm-hmm. with each other. And I think my understanding, just like from afar, is that due to like its stage play ness and its theatricality, like American Utopia is much more of like a sort of singular piece of art in that it has like themes and there are like things he wants to say and talk about it and talk about through American Utopia to maybe stop making sense a little, just like play the hits in a way that sort of transcend in the way it captures his joy, but it's maybe doesn't have that much on his mind. Obviously the, the under, there are all, there are underlying themes to the music of the talking heads that always shine through. But American Utopia seems to forefront them in a way that they maybe weren't before. Yeah, it definitely has that structure. I, I think obviously the the biggest point, and this has come up in like the views of it, is there's a there's like a song towards the end called "Hail Hail You Town Bout" or something like, or "Hell Hell You Town Bout." I'm just kind of looking off the Broadway cat cast recording of it in that's essentially a song that almost like very ritually like it's it's him essentially naming a lot of victims of like police violence and brutality and saying their name and then not say your name say your name and it's like and like the film will show like images of them and then like oh you know although like this was filmed last year or whatever they were able to kind of add in the names of like Rihanna Taylor and similar people from this year into it, like at the end, or that transition. So that's definitely like, you know, you don't see something like that and stop making sense. It's mm. kind of getting closer to him trying to make a thing. Yeah, yeah that's that's definitely the also the part that feels like the most spiky. <laughs> yeah, as in spikely, not like prickly. Um, that I feel like that's the part where you really like feel his influence the most, and I think that's a I'm guessing that's a big part of why he wanted to do it and why David Byrne wanted him to do it. Oh, also, just as a side note, there's a part where the two of them introduce the movie, like a like a separate sort of video thing, and <laughs> their chemistry together is non-existent. It's just like, he's my good buddy, David Byrne. And then David Byrne's like, yes, we're good friends. Um... <laughs> But yeah, uh, for me, for me, the sort of like thematic ideas and the sort of things he he sort of well, it's it's sort of like him monologuing basically uh, at certain parts of the show. For me, mm-hmm. that's the weakest stuff. Honestly, I feel like it's mm-hmm. a little. It feels a little liberal elite, where he sort of is like talking about how everyone should vote and talking about how racism is bad. <laughs> And like, it it just he does feel it's it's the parts that make him feel the most like kind of an old white guy, um, and you know obviously it's admirable that he wants to talk about these things and that he has passion about these things, but at times it kind of feels like he doesn't have a ton, at least a ton original to say about that stuff, and so I feel like that's sort of where, for me the it. it it falls a little short. Yeah, his 
His messaging is definitely, like, comes across better, like, in the music itself than the kind of spoken portions, which I can, like, ba barely remember when they weren't set to music. Yeah, I, I feel like David Byrne talking to you and telling you, like, telling you very clearly what his point is, is not the best version of David Byrne communicating with you. Yeah. I like him doing the song of, like, the names, and then that leads into One Fine Day, which viewers of Amazon's The Tick might remember appeared, like, t towards, like, the f finale. That kind of, again, gets some of his stuff across better than the actual talking portions of it. Cool. Any final thoughts on that before we move on to maybe some of the smaller titles from the festival? Yeah, just that, like I said, I, I'm excited for people to see it because I think people will enjoy it. And I feel like it's definitely something where wa like watching it back to back with Stop Making Sense, you would definitely get something out of that and be able to take away sort of compare and contrast sort of things from that. Yeah. And I don't know much else. I've had, this must be the place stuck in my head for like a week now. So yeah, I mean, that's hard, hard not to what per one of the, the best songs of all time. Yeah. It, it sounds great musically. That's where I want to be. Um, yeah, so what what other smaller movies do, would you like to talk about? Uh, actually, I did see one more big film, uh, Nomadland. Oh, of course. Oh. How's Nomadland? Yeah. Yeah, so Nomadland was one where it wasn't one I had like bought a ticket for initially, and then once it started getting all that praise from like Venice and all mm -hmm. the all the hype like, suddenly became very on my radar on a oh can I still get into this and I could which was nice yeah I, I saw Nomadland as well um, yeah the, it didn't seem like a lot of stuff was uh, was sold out the only thing I saw that was totally sold out online was Ammonite right which, uh, yes, I heard that I heard. Ammonite was uh, was off sale very, very early in the process. Yeah, there was also Hall Halle Berry had a film at the festival that also seemed to like have sold out pretty quickly. So, yeah, I also tried Ammonite, and then uh, the film festival in my city, Calgary, is was also playing playing it, and is. So I was able to get a much cheaper ticket to see it uh, on Thursday, actually. Okay. Good to hear. Chris, did you also see Nomadland? I did see Nomadland. That was the other one I saw. That's that's definitely my favorite thing coming out of the festival. Um, I'm I'm really really interested in this award season and how that movie will play awards wise because. It's a very, I mean, it's, it's, it's like, it is a, it's a very Chloe Zhao movie. <laughs> like I watched the rider the day before to sort of prepare cause I hadn't seen it before. And it's, it's very similar where it's very low key. 
Um, a lot of it, you know, feels sort of low stakes. A lot of it feels very small and it's obviously super naturalistic. And so I do sort of wonder if it's the kind of movie that is, you know, going to win a best picture or win acting awards. So I'm very curious to see how that, how that all shakes out. But yeah, I, I loved it. I thought it was great. Yeah, the early buzz around it as, like, a major Oscar player was a bit surprising, because, like Chris said, like, it, it's not your typical, like, Oscar-type thing at all. It's much more low-key and, and na- natural and, and stuff, so it winning the Golden Lion at Venice, like, was definitely a surprise, but, yeah. And winning the People's Choice Award as well. Yeah, that- but yeah. Yeah, that's a very, it's a great movie. That's a very interesting thing because it won both the Golden Lion and the People's Choice, which is not a thing that happens often. It is the first uh, time that that has happened. Yes, I would have to imagine it. Yeah, I feel like, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's probably. I mean, this, the same movies premiere both places. I guess in a more normal year, there would be more of an attempt to be a distinction even though the people's choice is theoretically chosen by the people stay woke open your third eye don't listen to this stuff but right and the other thing is that nomadland was like billed very much as like a co-premiered between the festivals it was uh they, they showed it on the same day and like it so yeah it, it neither festival really had a claim over it like TIFF often does go to, especially the top prize, often does go to a TIFF premiere. Yeah, I mean, I think it'll be a big success. I think it's one of those things where people like to talk about, well, is this awards year or not? And it's just like, Moonlight is an awards year. I think I think those sorts of labels are mostly just like marketing concerns, and it has like a very upcoming director who is working on a big thing, and Francis McDormand. So that makes it awards year, regardless of just like how difficult and how like uh sort of calm and quiet, which I hear it might be. And it seems exciting. What did you guys like about it, Chris? If you want to start off. Yeah, I I will say just quickly to compare it to Moonlight. I feel like it's the thing that makes me feel that makes me the most curious about its awardsiness is sort of how undramatic it is. Um, you know, the rider is very sort of similar, although the rider does sort of have a central conflict in terms of the character and what he's going through. Um, and, and this character is definitely going through similar things. Frances McDormand, her her character is named Fern, which follows the Chloe Zhao school of character naming. Um but yeah, it, it's it's very much it's sort of it's a it's it's a very vignette movie uh because, you know, it's about a character who's living a nomadic lifestyle and so she's going to new places, she's doing different things, she's meeting different people, she's re-meeting the people who she might have met earlier along her journey and sort of she's it's sort of about it gradually sort of coalesces into feeling like this one big journey or sort of leading towards this point of sort of self-growth self actual actualization whatever you might want to call it but 
yeah, it, it's... I wouldn't say it's incredibly slow. I certainly never found it boring by any means. Um, but it is, it is, it takes its time and it's very, very simple in what it gives to you. Uh, yeah, it's definitely one where it's, I watched it after like kind of an eight hour shift at work and it was a very good movie to kind of just unwind to and sort of vibe with. Like it's Francis McDormand, like it's definitely like a different thing than I'm used to seeing her playing, like. I usually picture kind of her playing a bit more steely, like, in her roles here, and, like, her character in this is a bit, like, softer than I would have expected based on, like, what I had heard, and, you know, she's, she's friendly, she's, like, talking to people, and it's an interesting performance, too, because obviously a lot of the other people in it aren't professional actors, so she kind of sort of lowers it down where... You know, she's giving a performance, but, like, it blends in with what the rest of the people are kind of giving. So, you really do kind of start to to just buy her as one of these people before you're like, Oh, wait, yeah, no, that's Frances McDormand. Yeah, much, much like the writer, which was pretty closely, from what I understand, based on the actual experiences of... The actors themselves i think it very much you know it's it does sort of feel like almost docudrama-ish at points where you can get lost in how how naturalistic it is and how much it feels like something that's just happening in front of your eyes and how unmovie like it feels like which i fe- which i think is a very chloe zhao thing and a very effective thing in terms of sort of being able to draw you in and making you feel comfortable with these people because everyone in the in the movie does feel like a person you could meet in your daily life and they're the sort of people you know it's like the person at the grocery like the person who's bags your groceries who sort of just makes you smile with how they talk about things like that sort of working class and very just almost almost down home sensibility but it's it's obviously it's never corny or anything like that but it's 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 definitely a movie about that type of person and the value and the beauty in that type of person and so i think that's a, a big part of that is how naturalistic it all feels yeah interesting to hear i'm excited to watch it i'll be watching it this saturday i'm pretty sure for uh the New York Film Festival, which I think you might still be able to get tickets to. So if this comes out tomorrow, like it tomorrow Tuesday, like it's supposed to, you might still be able to get tickets to Ch- Chris's favorite movie of the Toronto Film Festival. Let me, let me make sure. <laughs> that's that's what they should put mm-hmm, on the poster. Absolutely, put the laurels up. Uh, Nomadland has re sold out. But I believe that they have already added tickets, so who knows? Maybe they'll add tickets again. Who knows? I mean, Chris, you're, you're people, so it was the People's Choice Award, so in some way. I, I was about to say it was the, creeple, it was the Creeple's Choice. <laughs> you, can certainly, CHR. you can certainly say that. I, no, I got it. E-E-P-L-E-S. Apostrophe. We all understood what you were getting at, Chris. It's like my name, Chris. 
And then the word peoples. Kenny, anything else you watched at the Toronto Film Festival you might want to talk about? Oh, yeah. I, I watched a few other things at the fe- festival. I think I got six. Um, I'll, I'll touch on, like, a couple of the... Uh, yeah. They were, like, less minor ones, but at least one of them was definitely, like, the last one I watched on the festival on a day where I was, like, kind of distracted, but the digital window to watch these things is 24 hours from start to from like start to finish so when you're in the end of that window it's kind of like oh kind of gotta get in on and watch fauna mm-hmm. any thoughts on fauna yeah i saw fauna which that's one where like i de- it's definitely one where i want to watch it again and yeah because again I didn't get as much out of it as maybe I would have if I was, you know, kind of paying more attention like some of the other ones. But it's definitely a very interesting film. It was directed by Nicholas Parada, and it's a movie that kind of looks at sort of Mexico and narco culture and how the kind of stuff like like Narcos Mexico and media like that has sort of affected people's impressions of Mex- of Mexico. Yeah, that sounds cool. Yep. I uh, will uh, probably uh, finish this call and then go watch it at the New York Film Festival. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, no, I I saw that, I'm like, oh, I bet Jesse's gonna see this and it's like a Jesse <laughs> Oh, yeah, it's seventy minutes long. That's a mm-hmm. plus for it in, and yeah, we we all stand a short movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pro- it dabbles in surrealism a bit, and kind of just playing with the idea of of storytelling, sort of, and you know, have like, why do we keep telling these story stories about and about this place? How does this like affect the people that live there? Does it eventually start to wear in the mind where? It's like, oh, you do you want to like finish this one when you kind of can go through the beats by heart? Let's begin about like and have vagueish terms, partly because I think part of the fun of it is just watching it unfold, and partly because yeah, again, I'll admit, uh, it's one where I'm like, oh, I wish I had paid more attention to this. Mm-hmm. As a listener of the show, often. No, we uh, we on the show often struggle to pay attention to things. And, yeah, uh, definitely none of us like... have, f- none of the people on this call have slept through the vast majority of a uh, movie directed by a major world cinema director while sitting right next to each other at the Toronto Film Festival. <laughs> <laughs> I did forget about that one. <laughs> And anything else, Kenny? Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Another one. Another one I uh, had caught was I saw it was a documentary, Forty Years a Prisoner. Uh, what's the documentary about? Uh yeah, that one was interesting. So, Forty Years a Prisoner, which was sorry, some stuff I like pull pulled out information on. So, Forty Years a Prisoner, which is kind of director Tommy Oliver and. That follows this activist, Mike Africa Jr., and who was sort of the child of two people who were part of the Move 9. They were 
move was this activist group in Philadelphia in like the seventies, led by this John John Africa yes. was his name. Yeah, John Africa, the name of the, the yeah. leader of move. Yeah, this might be more familiar to like American audiences than a thing. This was all like yeah. new information. Um, well. A film that was at TIFF and is at New York Film Festival that we will talk about next week, The Inheritance, deals a lot with the history of MOVE also, which is why we're more familiar with this than what a normal person might typically be. This is not a thing I had known before this week either. No worries about it. Yeah. Okay, great. But but basically, the short version of what happens is his parents are involved with this activist group that essentially lives in a commune setting and kind of flaunts a lot of bylaws by and sort of deals with a lot of, yeah, a lot of resistance from, yeah, kind of the white residents and the police. And in 1978, there's sort of a shootout and a police officer is killed. And nine of these members, including both of his parents, were sort of jailed for it and it's a dog that like its interest is less in kind of the actions of the group or whatever what happened was justified but more looks into the idea that nine people were held for over 40 years on the death of a single officer because in this kind of system that's been set set up the parole people see themselves as like part of this force and it's the idea of if something if you do something to one of our people we will punish you forever for it and it's meanwhile this kid who like never really knew his parents until he was older and then kind of working to get him get them freed and get them paroled for it and he's eventually successful which is kind of ends the documentary on a more uplifting note than you might get with something that deals with systemic racism in the states but uh, it's definitely an interesting film to watch one night. Yeah, yeah, it's very. In- did not know that there was like a full documentary about that story because it, it was very interesting. Like watching the inheritance, which is like sort of about that. Like we'll talk about it next week, but it's sort of about like these new people living in a commune in Philadelphia, and eventually they like talk to people from Move and they like get the story from about what happened from them and it's like. It's yes, like, Mike, Michael Africa it's, Jr. and both of his parents are in The Inheritance. Yes. Oh, interesting. So it, it's interesting to see these, like, complement, these sort of be complementary pieces. Apparently, 40 Year the Prisoner is premiering on HBO on December 3rd. So that'll be interesting to check out for people who might have not caught it at Toronto. Okay. Yeah, I'd definitely be in The Inheritance at some point to see another part of this story it's, it's you know, definitely a fun one to like pop on and then be confronted with like you know a piece of history where I'm like oh I had no idea this even happened yeah I mean not to blow it out to like the longer conversation but it's like there's a lot of stories like, like that in America of stuff like that that happened that don't get taught so it's interesting to see the sort of like modern focus on this story from a couple of different lenses though the inherit like the inheritance is sort of a weird movie to talk about in vague terms because it's just it's sort of like a very vibey like french new wave inspired thing that like figures like with that history in like very vague terms and uses it as sort of like 
inspiration for the types of things that it's getting to. So, but I'm I be I I was certainly I did watch like Michael Africa Jr.'s like small part in it, and I was like, wow, that's like a fascinating story, and I it's good to see that there is a full documentary out there coming about the whole story. Yeah, and that's a bit of a good bit of a segue actually into the last film I sort of watched at the the festival, which if I had watched a couple of stuff that dealt maybe with American racism. Last thing I watched was Beans, which de- oh perfect kind of racism on the Canadian side. Yeah, this was one that I I didn't actually see it, but I wanted to bring it up because uh, because exactly like you're saying, because it's it sounds similar a lot of ways in terms of highlighting something a piece of Canadian history that I I, I doubt most Americans are familiar with. Yeah. So, yeah. so Beans is, it is the debut, uh, the film debut, I believe, of Tracy Deer, who is a Mohawk indigenous filmmaker from Canada, and it's kind of a coming-of-age drama, very much inspired by her life growing growing up in the midst of something called the Oka Crisis. I don't know if either of you are familiar or... Not really. Well, so the short version is, like, in 1990, there was... In there is kind of this town called Oka in Quebec that had a that essentially was attempting to build a golf course, and the land they were doing sort of wanting to build this on extended onto like traditional indigenous burial grounds, and they attempted to go ahead with it anyways. So, uh, so a group of kind of Mohawk warriors and people from the tribe set up a blockade on, like, a major bridge, and it became a very tense 90-day standoff. So, Beans, which, already, like, heavier material than, like, the name suggests, but it kind of goes from the name of... It's the nickname of the protagonist, too. It's kind of... Her proper name is much longer, and... uh, I do not remember how to say it, which I guess kind of goes into it, but she's sort of introduced as this 12-year-old girl hoping to get into this prestigious private school, purposely sort of shortening her name name to, oh yeah, people just call me Beans, to be more comfortable to, like, the white interviewer. And it's kind of this thing of her her dad is one of these people who then gets involved in this kind of blockade, and she lives in this thing, and it's sort of a coming-of-age story against the backdrop of suddenly realizing that a lot of people you kind of you know, never thought much of beyond, oh, these are other people, might have very unfriendly thoughts towards you. It's, it's a film that it mixes in, like, real news footage from the time of just interviewers saying, like, awful things, things saying to just, you know, kind of get off the country and get out, out of there and... There was stuff like the citizens of this town essentially were refusing service. They were attempting to stop food from getting into like the reserve where yeah where where these tribes were living. So and just nasty stuff like that. Um, in one of the more kind of harrowing scenes, while Bean's mother is driving her and her young sister home, she suddenly instructs them to undo their seatbelts and get on the floor of the car because they're about to 
past the part of this where a bunch of people are throwing rocks at their car. And it's very much like a thing thing of like it's never yeah. It's never too much. I think partly because it was based on the director's own experiences and trauma that she was still sort of working through. Like it's never it never feels unbearable, but it's always kind of something that yeah, you know, is really I think meant to eye kind of open eyes, particularly to people who are like, oh yeah, Canada doesn't have that same kind of stuff that the States deals with. Mm-hmm. And it's very much a wake-up call to, no, no, this is there, this happened, like, 30 years ago. It's very fresh. Yeah, that's, that's why I wanted to bring it up, because, you know, obviously, just in this year, racism in the United States has been such a big topic um you know in in everyone's life um and and there's a lot of a tendency i think for people to sort of whitewash canada or to sort of give canada more credit than it's due uh in terms of how we are with racism compared to the united states uh but the, and this is a, a very canadian story and first nations people are such a huge part of Canada's history um, and Canada's culture and everything really um, that I feel like this is a very Canadian story. And I feel like it's, it's definitely, I'm glad that it seems like uh, TIFF is very committed to indigenous filmmakers. And uh, I'm, I'm just glad that it's a movie that we get to see and that actually gets a, a wide audience to see it. Yeah, and it's like, and it's a very good movie. Like, it's a it's a fairly like con- confident debut. There's some beautiful shots of the yeah, reserve and the more childhood in a, in a sense in. And if some of the coming of age stuff gets laid on like, yeah, you, you know, a little thick or like is kind of what you'd expect expect from it. There is sort of the interest of seeing like how this person like responds to kind of racism, especially when she starts falling with the friend group of, like, the older kids who are gonna, like, yell back at the protesters and kind of fight back, and it also ends on a moment that, yeah, that kind of, you know, brings it full circle, circle and put in a way that makes, like, an effective statement on how to, on how to essentially function in white society while still not letting them, like, minimize you yeah that's a good good to hear because obviously like they pay a lot of lip service to like the land acknowledgements and that those sorts of things which are is it like it obviously like a nice gesture and an important thing to do but it's you know all those things come out as empty gestures if they aren't like putting in the work into highlighting both cinema and just like the culture of the indigenous people through whose lands they like profit off so it's good to hear that there are there are like giving a platform to indigenous filmmakers to tell personal stories and that they've made something good so it's nice to hear beans i'll check out beans mm-hmm. it's got a good title it's beans it's a great title yeah the more fun title than the movie that like <laughs> but it's but maybe that's part of 
the point, it lures you in with, oh, what's this? And then you get, like, a nice lesson. Well, maybe nice is maybe the wrong word, but necessary lesson. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Listen. Necessary, nice. They're all N words that go around. <laughs> so, is that it? Je- Jesse's yeah, or, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, sounds like we're we we've gone through all the movies. Any you, uh, Chris, you got any thoughts to wrap up your TIFF experience? Um, well, I'll I'll, I'll do a couple of quick shoutouts to movies that I wanted to see. Um, I heard a lot about Pieces of a Woman with uh, mm-hmm. Shia LaBeouf and Vanessa Kirby. Um, and then also Wolf Walkers, the animated movie that I think is supposed to be coming to yes, Apple that's correct. sometime this year. Yes. Uh, uh, those are both ones that I definitely I know wanna... Andy watched it, so we might talk about it soon on maybe one of our New Year's film festivals. Maybe, or I'll just in. have Andy throw a little Wolf Walkers monologue onto this episode. Uh, that would be that would be a treat. <laughs> Howdy folks, uh, Andy here with a few, few quick thoughts on uh, Wolfwalkers, which is one of the uh, movies that played at TIFF that was a- available for streaming in the um, United States. So I uh, took that opportunity to watch it. Uh, this is a movie that's directed by uh, Tom Moore and Ross Stewart. Uh, Tom Moore um, has had a has a pretty notable history of, of, of animated movies. His, he's the founder, I believe, of the, of the studio. Uh, Cartoon Saloon, which is an Irish uh, animation studio that has uh, produced uh, some pretty notable work so far. Their their track record is like very impressive so far. Um, they um, uh, Secret of Kells, uh, Song of the Sea, and The Breadwinner are like the three uh, features that they've released so far. And I think um, I've seen all of them. I haven't seen Breadwinner since it was out originally, but I re- I um, in the run-up to Wolfwalkers, I decided on the t- day of that I was going to buy a ticket. Uh, and so I then, that day, watched uh, Secret of Kells and Song of the Sea. Secret of Kells is on Canopy and Song of the Sea is on Netflix. Um, so I was able to, to, to fit those in, both because they're very short uh, and because uh, it was slow at work, which I was supposed to be doing. Um, so the so those movies are all... so I, The first thing about this movie... Um, is that they are all, all these movies are like insanely gorgeous. It's, uh, it's 2D animation. It's really, um, really geometric. There's like very, everything has, has, is like either very circular, right? Like a full circle, or it is like very much like the shape, like angular and the shape that it is. So I think the design is like really cool, really expressive. The backgrounds are like full of detail. Um, there's, um, very often like a lot of like like you know ancient fancy writing like stuff going on and like the, all these movies are just like insanely gorgeous wolf walkers specifically um is about um a young girl uh, whose father is a hunter uh who's um trying to get rid of wolves from outside of this village um i believe wolf walkers is like the conclusion of like what is a like loose trilogy about like uh, Irish folklore, uh, essentially, with Secret of Kells and Song of the Sea. Um, uh, so this one is it, it involves characters who are wolfwalkers, which are um, P- 
people who have like strong connections with wolves and have like wolf spirits in them um where they have sort of like healed and therefore like they have like a wolf avatar who like when they sleep they become like they project this like wolf avatar who like interacts with the world and and can control the wolves and 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 run around and 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 all that sort of thing so the the is there's this young girl who's uh the, the, um robin um who uh, it has a single father um, who the father is trying to get rid of the wolves. He's not doing it that successfully. Um, uh, they come to a connection with, with some wolf walkers. Robin especially does. Um, and uh, she gets sort of gets uh, tied up with them. Uh, and, um, uh, and, and, and she, um, uh, and, and, and she, you know, she, she sort of tries to interfere with, like, what her, um, with what her, uh, or what, in, in, like, what her dad's trying to do, and, like, whether it's right for them to, like, try to get rid of these wolves, and, and because, you know, the people keep trying to encroach upon the forest, and this, there's all these themes of, like, expansion, and, and civilization, and, the, you know, nature versus, uh, humankind, and, like, um, uh, you've got, uh, Sean Bean is playing her dad. Um, you've got, uh, Simon McBurney is playing the, like, uh, is playing Oliver Cromwell, the L Lord Protector Oliver Cromwell, the, uh, the, the, the government guy in charge who's, you know, ruling with an iron fist and is, like, being really, um, strict about how things are, should go and, and is, is quick to throw people in the stocks. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's just an incredibly beautiful movie. I really loved it. Uh, it's, it's, it's made it into my top 10, like instantly. Um, it, the, the animation sequences where you take on the perspective of, um, some of the wolf walkers in, when they're in their wolf, um, uh, sort of persona is really like stunning to the animation of the kind that you like don't really see anymore. It's really, really, really beautiful. Um, it's, you know, and it's an emotional story. It's a, they form these, it's a friendship story as, as these two young girls form connections and, and sort of try to bridge their worlds. It's, 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 it's got a lot of like thematic depth, I think. And it's, it's, and it, and like I said, it's absolutely gorgeous. Um, it will be releasing on Apple TV plus, uh, sometime this year, I believe. So it is well worth checking out. Um, when that is the case, you know, if you, if you buy an Apple product, you get a year free of Apple TV plus, or, uh, it's only four ninety nine a month. And I think it would be well worth it to, to see this, uh, gorgeous movie. Um, it's yeah. And, 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 uh, I, I, th I think it's a really terrific stuff and, and, um, I would, you know, I'd love to see it again. I think all the, all these cartoon saloon movies are incredibly gorgeous and worth second, uh, seeking out. I, I loved especially secret of Kells, which is just, you know, absolutely gorgeous um and so uh it's it's definitely a strong recommendation for me and i think um it's something that hopefully will uh something that people will be talking about uh even in this weird year um so this has been andy uh you know plugs are happening uh andy t germ on all social media signing off thanks for listening um but yeah it it, it was uh, I know Kenny has never been to the festival. Uh, I was with you guys mm -hmm. at the festival last year. Uh, I met both of you there in person for the first time. Uh, Emilio stayed on my couch and mooched off me. As I am known to uh, do. 
but yeah, it's, it, I was, you know, obviously in these uncertain times, uh, I think everyone's missing that communal social experience, but TIFF is definitely a major highlight of my year, not only for getting to see, you know, really good new movies, but also for getting to spend a lot of time with people who I know are passionate about movies and getting to talk to them and hang out with them and do stuff with them. Uh, so I was really missing that this year. But from from what I've heard, just talking to people, everyone sounds really excited. I think, you know, <laughs> hopefully we'll keep our fingers crossed that things will look better this time next year because everyone I've talked to is super excited about the prospect of coming next year. And so I think if thing if it does happen next year in in the way that we are accustomed to the festival happening it's going to be yeah next a ton of fun. next time we can go to uh Toronto the can i kick it party is going to be lit <laughs> i'm in no way shape or form associated with the can i kick it party <laughs> Kenny any thoughts uh yeah i'll, I'll say Obviously, like this year didn't unfold as anyone expected. At least, little, at least, all Toronto Film Festival when putting this together. And while you know, I'm not gonna say, "Oh, I'm glad I got to go see these movies." I think it was nice that they decided to open up the festival and allow people from other places in Canada who maybe don't travel out to Toronto or east to the opportunity to see some of these movies from the comfort of their own home mm-hmm. uh, and i'm very happy that i can now just tell people oh yeah i went to tiff this year or like <laughs> and had even like a virtual festival experience a bit yeah it's like it's an interesting experience because just watching new york film festival stuff and like not getting to watch tiff stuff it's just like the things that are different and the things that are the same and it's like the excitement to watch a new movie is is still there partially probably enhanced by the fact that like this year there have been less new movies out so like any opportunity to just like watch something new and exciting is like there's a multiplying effect on that excitement so that it like a level of excitement that i have at tiff every year exists but just like what chris mentioned just like the communal aspects of just like getting to talk about these movies and like finding new people who are into stuff and just like spending time in the city of toronto which is a good city is not there which like sucks but hopefully will be better next year so yeah and i also just wanted to mention that when you said kenny any thoughts it sounded like jenny any dots this is getting cut (laughs) that's fine Everyone got to experience it live. All right, then. Uh, do you guys have anything that you would like to plug? Let's start with uh, Kenny. Anything you would like to plug? <laughs> oh. Um, well, I have a podcast. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at like a Wolverine. I tweet intermittently, and find me on letterbox under that same like a wolverine handle and where can we find your podcast you can find me on 
but Lion King 2 Simba's Pride episode of Vaulting the Vault, a direct-to-video Disney podcast. It's very good. And on, the, yeah. and on the Tony Scott's Domino episode of The Sahara Tapes, a podcast that one of your regular co-hosts was on recently. We don't talk about our other co-host when he's not in. Mm-hmm. Co-host we have recently will not be named. Yeah, he will not be named. Chris, is there anything you want to plug? Uh, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll plug my Twitter. It's at House and Jan. It's H O W S O N J A N. Uh, you can also follow me on Medium, where I write about movies. Sometimes I have a Nomadland review that I put up uh, last week, and I read a lot about basketball as well. That's just Medium.com slash at very confusing. Uh, C House and Jan H O W S O N J A N. We all love internet formatting. Also, I have a podcast about Weezer that is defunct, but if you search in the garage Weezer podcast on YouTube, you can hear me and a couple of my friends talk about every Weezer album except the most recent one. Will there be ever be one on the most recent one? That's the question. There are people in the YouTube comments who are actually being like what is this coming out and so i feel like we do have to do it but it's also been so long that i kind of just want to keep that going that we covered every weezer album except one well, well so so is the idea that when another weezer album comes out you'll cover the previous one so that it's still all of them but one exactly okay. hopefully hopefully on the on the day that van weezer is released you'll get to hear our episode on the black album what if I guess we're just pitching ideas for your podcast now. What if you do one yeah. on Van Weezer and then just never acknowledge the Black Album? That would be really good as well. I think we have a couple of options there. Um, so so I'll, I'll take that into consideration. But check out the preceding episodes. They're very bad, and I love them. Excellent. You can find us on Twitter at Can I Kick It, spelled the same way that the podcast is spelled in your app. You can find us on Letterboxd at C-I-K-I-Pod. You can find me on both of those platforms at J.P. Glick Weber, Weber with two Bs, and Emilio. Uh, this is going to have, yeah, I assume this is going to have, have our theme song on it. So our theme song is by Tree Related. You can follow them at SoundCloud.com slash Tree Related. Or search tree related on Spotify. It's a good theme song, and he made it for free, so you should check his, out his stuff. You can find me on the Twitters as I'm Laugh Alone. You can follow me on Letterbox at I Laugh Alone. That is it. Great. Then I will go ahead and release our audience. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.